0: Good to be with you all this morning. We'll go ahead and get started here. This morning, we'll be looking at Psalm 130, a psalm of lament. Now, lament is not very popular. It's actually coming into vogue. But in general, lament is not very popular. We find it difficult. And we'll talk about some of the reasons lament is difficult. But this week in particular... We should be very open to considering why the Bible has lament psalms, why the Bible teaches us to lament. Today is Maundy Thursday, right? Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's celebrating the Lord's Supper, uh, the Last Supper with His disciples in preparation for what's going to happen tomorrow. From the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That experience of abandonment, that feeling of betrayal, but he's quoting one of the lament psalms. He's citing Psalm 22 and inviting everyone who hears it to contemplate the whole psalm, not just the opening verses, but the way David cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus entered Jerusalem just a few days earlier, he lamented over the city, the city that God chose, the city that God put his name upon. He wept. Listen to Luke Luke 19.41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus saw the city that God chose to put his name on, and he wept for two reasons. On the one hand, he was weeping because God's righteous judgment was about to come on the city. If you know the history, if you understand what's going on here, Jesus knows God's judgment for idolatry, for immorality, for injustice. God's judgment is about to be poured out in just... Thirty-some-odd years later, the Roman army will come and surround Jerusalem, lay siege to the city, and destroy the city, kill many of the inhabitants. Jesus sees that righteous judgment, and so he's weeping, even though it's righteous judgment. But at the same time, he knows innocent people. There's nobody without guilt. The Psalm 130 will teach us that. Women and children will be the first to suffer, because of the siege, because of the lack of water, the lack of food. Fundamentally, innocent people will suffer greatly. And he sees what's going to happen to them. He knows this. And so he weeps, both out of the righteous judgment that they're going to receive and out of the innocents who will suffer. He sees that and he weeps. He laments over the city he loves. But Jesus himself, let's listen to Matthew 26, 19, Excuse me, 26, 38, and 39. Jesus himself, as he's preparing, this is this, this night, preparing to go to the cross. Matthew 26, 38, and 39. Then he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father... If it be possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will but as you as you will Jesus is sorrowful Now if you read the whole New Testament you know Jesus knew what was going to happen He knew he was going to the cross Hebrews tells us for the joy the joy of accomplishing our salvation he went to the cross He accomplished everything joyfully. Now that's the big picture view. Here we have the specific picture view. On the night before, he was to go to the cross. He's sorrowful in so many ways. He understands the sin of humanity, and he's about to feel it all. He's sorrowful to the point of death. And what's he doing? He's praying. He's pouring out a soul to God. John tells us, tears like like drops of blood. His intensity is so great, he's crying out to God. And what does he say? Let this cup pass from me. Think about the profundity of that statement. He's saying, let this cup pass from me. This is going to be really painful, horrific. And he's not talking about the physical pain. He experienced that as well. He's talking about the spiritual pain. He recognizes the pain and he's sorrowful. He's wrestling. He's pouring out his soul to God. Yet resolved, but not my will, but yours be done. This is lament. Jesus lamented corporately over a city. He lamented personally, pouring out his soul to God. He lamented on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Why don't you hear my prayer? Why do you abandon me? In my hour of need. This is Jesus lamenting. Yet we find it difficult to lament. We find it difficult to process lament. So let me just back up and say, in the Psalms, there are Psalms of praise. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise Him with dancing and songs and tambourines and all kinds of instruments. There are prayers of thanksgiving where we specifically list the many things God has done the specific things he's done in our lives, and we give, them, give him thanks for that. But do you know what there's more of than any other kind of psalm? <laughs> psalms of lament. 40% of the psalms are psalms of lament. So this is not an exception. This is not something else. This is one of the major reasons we have the psalms, so we would learn how to lament. The reason it's difficult will become obvious, obvious As I describe the emotions found in some of the lament psalms, and I'll just list some that are found in Psalm 6. The psalmist is afraid. He's afraid of discipline, that the Lord is about to discipline him, which suggests he knows he's done something wrong, but he's afraid. He says he's languishing, his strength is ebbing away, no more power. No more ability to hold on and do things. Collapse could come at any moment. Death is imminent. He feels like he could die at any moment. That's the overwhelming feeling upon him. And the meaningless of life is staring him in the face. He's worn out. Exhausted from weeping. His eyes are red from crying for so long. Some of you know that feeling. You just can't stop the weeping. He's surrounded by those who do evil, who appear to be succeeding, people who see his weakness, see that he's faltering, and are ready to pounce. These are the feelings going on in the psalmist when he's expressing his lament. We don't like those feelings. (laughs) I don't like to feel afraid and languishing and worn out. But laments come both individually and corporately. We're both thinking about our individual situation, praying from the I language, this is what's happening to me, and corporately, from the we language, what's happening to us, what's going on in our lives, in our community. And in corporate laments, you often hear language of shame, humiliation, failure, failure. Think about the Old Testament people of God. They went out to fight the enemies of God's people, the enemies of God, and they lost. They were defeated. They are now a subjugated people, ruled by a foreign power, paying taxes to other people, to foreign governments. Think through the concept of the fall of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus was weeping over when it was gonna happen in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, your symbol of national pride, your city, the city upon which God placed his name, the the temple where God dwells, imagine that being your historical foundation for being, and then it being destroyed, completely taken out, it lies in in rubble. When you see that happen, when you feel that humiliation and that shame, and it's not going to change... The temple laying in rubble where God dwelled is not going to be resurrected in a day. You look at that and you say, the shame, the humiliation is overwhelming. This is why, these are the reasons why the psalmists lamented, why God teaches us to lament. Because in so many different ways, we've experienced that. I can share why it's difficult for me with a very simple illustration. My wife and I are empty nesters. Our kids have grown up and gone off to college and university in Indonesia and live in other places. And so in January, we decided we'd take up a new hobby that we'd do together. Something for me and my wife to learn together, exciting opportunity, so we take up rock climbing. They opened the high point uh, climbing around the corner from my house. And uh, so here's what I'm thinking. We would like to go trekking, okay? And then when you go trekking, you don't need any ropes, nothing's technical and I'm very brave, and my wife is terrified of the word exposure. That means there's a cliff nearby, right? That means the possibility of falling off increases. So when we go by a cliff or something, because her balance isn't excellent. It's good, but it's not excellent. So when she sees that danger, her red lights go off and she gets nervous. I'm never scared of those things. So let's go climbing. I'll help my poor wife along. Well, it turns out (laughs) when my wife is tied in with a rope, that all goes away. And so we get to this climbing wall, which is 55 feet tall, and she scrambles up to the top, no problem. Oh, I'll show her, I'll pick some hard ride. Right. I'll just go right up to the top. Well, I'm fine for about the first 20 feet, and then I realize, I analyze this later, uh, I'm used to climbing where there's no rope, which means when I get above 20 feet, the risk is actually very real. The fact that I have a rope doesn't actually matter. So I become very afraid. (laughs) And then what happens is, if you're a climber, you know you're supposed to climb with your legs. Your legs are much bigger than your arms, and you have much more strength in your legs to climb up, and much less strength in your arms. But when you're afraid, what do you do? Every hold is a death grip. You hold onto it, and you squeeze onto it like if you let go, you're gonna die. That's fine for about 100 seconds, okay? Then your arms get tired, and you can't hold on any longer. But you're still thinking you're gonna die, so you hold on for dear life, and your arms start doing this, OK? And it increases exponentially for me every foot over 20 feet. So I get to 25, 30 feet. I look down. It's not 30 feet. It's 3,000 feet. I'm looking down. I'm terrified. I'm weak because I can't hold onto the holds because I'm shaking so hard. And so what happens? I can't get to the top. Now, there's a color code, and I'm partially colorblind. And so, when you get part way up the wall, I switch from the hard holds to the easy holds, and, uh, and then I get up to 30 feet, 35 feet, and I can't go any farther, and I quit. This happened multiple times in a row, multiple outings in a row for three, two, three weeks. And I come home for some reason frustrated, and I was thinking it through my head. My wife's all excited about what we learned together, and, uh, and I'm coming home angry and frustrated. Well, why? Because Every climb was characterized by fear, weakness, and failure. Since we're a men's group, I won't have to take a poll, but how many of you go, yeah, that's what I hope I feel today. I'd love to feel failure, weakness, and fear. That's the main things I, I, that's what I aspired to. Now, over time, I was able to analyze that and figure a few things out and realize you don't have to be afraid if the rope holds you. So. You know, I've made some progress. I've gone from absolute lowest beginner to the middle of the beginner level. Sadly, those of you who might have noticed, my wife is now on crutches with a cast because I convinced her to take a lead climbing class where you clip in with the ropes, and in one of those exercises, you have to practice falling 10 feet. And when she fell, while, I was belaying her, so I'm partially responsible. <laughs> her foot hit a hold on the land on the hard landing, and she broke her ankle. so More failure and humiliation. So I'm all about lament psalms these days. But those are the reasons why it's hard for us to lament. We have this inbred, inborn resistance to addressing fear, real fear, actual failure, and the things that cause us to weep, that cause us distress. Cause us to talk about humiliation and shame. So I want to ask us the question. Are we willing to go there this morning? It's Maundy Thursday. It's Holy Week. Jesus leads us there. He lamented. Can we learn from his example and learn from the teaching of Psalm 130? How to lament and how to think about lament and how to incorporate it into our lives. You will... Uh, if you scan the notes or the questions or wherever the material is, you'll notice there's going to be a homework assignment. I know we promise no homework in Amen. But there's a homework assignment. <laughs> and it's going to be to write out your own lament. So as we're talking through the psalm, you, you can take some notes because one thing, it's voluntary, you get no grade. <laughs> one thing that is helpful for us is to process that. The psalms aren't giving us primarily information. How can we know a bunch of facts? It's giving us language to communicate with God. So it doesn't do you a lot of good to memorize a bunch of facts from a bunch of Psalms as much as it's training us, it's giving us pathways to express things. See, the Psalms uh, as wisdom literature, as poetry, is designed to become universal. There's a lot of details left out of that history, so you can fill in your own. It's kind of like a template, and Psalm 130 in particular is a template, to fill in your own specifics, so that you can use this psalm to pray your prayer of lament, your prayer of confession, to express your waiting upon the Lord and hoping in Him. So let's look this morning at Psalm 130. I think I will read it through, and then we'll go through it in each section. Psalm 130 A song of ascent Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord; my soul waits, and in this world, in this word, excuse me, in this word, I have hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you would give us language to lament to express our deep anguish, to confess our own sin, to acknowledge who you are, and to wait upon you. And I pray that you would help us think through these things this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll look at these. There's four couplets, four couples of two verses. Each one has a distinct kind of line of thought. And so we'll look at them in those four sections. In the first section, the psalmist cries out to God from the depths. Now, a note on how to think about poetry in the Bible, largely in the Psalms, but also in Proverbs and a lot of the the prophets. Poetry has a lot of thought in a few words. So it's, it's like a sign that says, slow. Slow down the speed by which you're traveling through these words because a lot of words are left out. And you need to think about them and meditate upon them to wonder which words should be added in, what allusions are made, because unlike prose or narrative, that's where you give as many details as possible. Here, it's giving as few details as possible, so we would contemplate and think about it. It's also full of pictures, and so you want to stop and draw the picture up into your mind and think about it and see it and smell it and touch it so you can get the effect of it. That's the design of poetry. So I love the way it starts. Out of the depths. Which depths? Doesn't say, right? There's no specific depth. There's not one answer to this question. So we need to think, out of what depths? Is he talking about location? Sometimes in the Bible you read, out of the depths of the pit, right? There's some circumstance, there's some situation, there's some place that he's found himself in, David in the cave, or in a battle surrounded by enemies, or in, there's some circumstance. And we can begin to relate what, sometimes the depths is, the circumstances around us. Just got that really bad medical report. Just got the slip saying I need to go see my supervisor, and that's not good. Got a very confusing voicemail from one of my children, which signifies something's going on that's not going to be simple. There's some circumstance that causes us to feel like we're in the pit. We're surrounded. The the way out is unclear. It's not sure if I can do it. Or maybe it's a feeling out of the depths of despair. There's an emotion involved, right? He's feeling hopeless. It's not so much just the place or the circumstance, but the emotional state. I'm feeling completely lost. My strength is gone. Uh, My body's fine, right? We know this feeling. Health is good, (laughs) but I just don't know if I can take another step. I don't know if I can get out of bed. I'm sitting in this chair, and I really don't know if I could even get up. There's this dark cloud over us, and there's no place to go out of that depth. Maybe it's not so much emotion. It's that honest communication from the depths of my soul. That this isn't just information. This isn't just something I'm thinking about in the deepest core of my being. Right? We we don't always go there. That's a well-guarded place. We like to stay up here and with a few people we get here. But perhaps what he's saying is this is not those levels. This is the deepest level. This is my soul. Out of the depths of my soul I'm now speaking. The psalmist doesn't answer it. And maybe we have to ask that question. Do we are we willing to go to the depths of our soul? Are we, or do even we avoid that place? <laughs> you see, these are all places we as a gender don't like to go. We'd rather stay up here. We'd rather stay at the superficial, the things we can control, the things we feel good about. But here he's starting from the depths of his soul, from the depths of despair, from the circumstances that feel overwhelming. And what does he do? I cry out. Now, if you look in uh, verses 1 and 2, you see three parallel phrases. I cry to you, hear my voice, and let your ears be attentive to my pleas, to the voice of my pleas. Three different ways of saying something similar. He cries out, right? Not just speaks, not just verbalizes, he cries out. I love this. Uh, remember this comedian made a comment there. Many, many years ago, there was some commercial, maybe it was for perfume or something, and it said, if you want to get somebody's attention, whisper. The comedian said, help, I'm drowning. If you want to get somebody's attention, you cry out. Help, I'm drowning, right? You cry out because there's an urgent need. You feel it, you know it. Here he cries out to the Lord. He uses his voice, and I was just thinking about this. I don't know about you all, but I spend a lot of time in my head, meaning I'm thinking about things, um, analyzing things, um, sitting around. This is not something that's in his head. He's not just thinking about it in his own world. He's verbalizing it. He's speaking it out loud. My voice, hear my voice. But then the third time he calls it a plea. Okay, when do we plead? Pleading is not something, again, we like to do because it suggests dependence. It's kind of a last resort. I can't solve the problem. I really need help. He's pleading to God. Okay, so he's crying out. He's pleading. He's verbalizing what he, what he, wants, what he needs from the Lord. Now, when you talk about crying out, from deep emotion, some of us would like to say, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm a emotionally steady guy. I don't really feel emotion at that level. Well, let me change venues for a moment. If you can win the conference championship, your team is down by by two points, and you get fouled making a three point shot, and you make the first free throw, and you miss the next two, Anybody cry out? Anybody feel deep anguish of the soul when the past interference was not called, or was called and it wasn't past interference? Oh, we feel deep anguish. We cry, out. I could hear you, okay? I could hear you cry out when those things happen. We have deep emotion. We have deep feelings, and we verbalize them. Oh, well, I can read all the posts, right? You post it online, you talk to your friends, you're talking about it the next morning. We talk about things we care about. We verbalize it. Oh, and we know, are not we're omniscient too, by the way. <laughs> uh, we know how to do things up here at the superficial level. Occasionally, some of us get here. But do we know how to get here at the deep level to verbalize, to articulate the anguish of our soul? And that's the key to lament. The key to lament is that I cry out to you, O Lord. And here are the two different words used in verses 1 and 2. I cry out to you, Yahweh, the covenant God, the Lord, who is in eternal relationship with me. To Adonai, to the Lord, to my king, to the the one who is my master. He recognizes this pain. He recognizes this anguish. And he cries out, but not to no one, not to space, not just venting and ranting, but he cries out to the Lord. He knows he has a relationship with God. And that's the key to lament. The key to lament is when we have those experiences of deep pain, we don't have to understand them. We don't have to be able to put it together. We don't have to make it pretty. And that's what we'll get at in the next section. It can be pretty ugly. Because we're in this permanent family relationship with God, we can just, bleh, let it out, but to God. Because we're going to wait, the third section, we're going to wait upon God for his answer. We're going to trust him with whatever he does with a big mess. And yes, it's confusing, and yes, we're angry, and it's really hard to deal with. But we're going to cry out to God and ask him to respond. He cries out with boldness because of that relationship. It's like he's saying in all caps, listen to me. Have any of you ever had your child or grandchild do this to you? The child is talking, you're holding the child in your arms, and you might be looking at something else, and they grab your face. (laughs) They grab your face and physically point it at their face so you will listen to them. (laughs) Uh, That is what the psalmist is doing. God, listen to me. I'm crying out, and I need help. I'm in this pit. Will we learn how to do that with God? Will we cry for the depths, from the depths? When we face our failures, our weaknesses, our fears, again, I think what I do is I talk about the fears and weaknesses and the failures that are here and may be here. But the ones that are here? The real failure, I'm not talking about, I'm not sure I'm talking about it with me, much less with others. Are we willing to go there? Because otherwise our relationship with God is just going to be superficial. But the psalmist pours out his soul, pours out his heart to God. He cries out from the depths, hear my voice. Listen to my plea. It's my last shot. I'm afraid it's all going to end. Can we learn to identify those things in our lives that lead us into that depth, that deep place, that pit? And can we articulate them in authentic prayer, not pretty prayer, an authentic prayer to God? That's what the Lament Psalms teach us to do. That's where you need to fill in the blank. What is your depth? What is your circumstance or situation, do you have a way to verbalize it so we can give language, so we can articulate precisely what the thing is? That's something I find both so difficult and so helpful. Is it really failure or is it humiliation? They're actually different things. So some things, when I get my mind around the failure, you can say, oh, well, I really couldn't do that. That makes sense. That was beyond my ability. And while it's unpleasant, I actually don't feel terrible about it. However, the fact that that was public and that all my friends and that all my community saw that failure, I can't handle that. It's helpful to know what you're lamenting. You say, oh, that's what I can't handle. God, I can't handle this humiliation. It's just unbearable. To be able to articulate it, to speak it. I, he, he my voice. He spoke about the actual words he was saying. Here's another question, perhaps a little more difficult. How do people view us when they're the ones lamenting? And this, I think, is one of the problems in our culture. We don't tend to give people room to lament. To lament like David laments, like the psalmists lament, right? With all the un all the uncleaned up stuff, all the messiness. I don't know the answer yet. I'm just mad and upset, and I'm expressing it, when people face those disappointments and failures, would they come tell us? Would they feel comfortable pouring their soul out to us like we are to God? Or would we be too quick to fix it and to say, oh, it's all going to be fine. Oh, don't worry. Oh, don't be so downhearted. We have a up, we all always want to be up mentality. And that tells people who are deeply hurting, there's no place for you here. Would people come with us to, with their lament? What would it take for that kind of space to be created so the people who I do love could come and pour their soul out? And I would be a safe ear for that. They would feel compassion, understanding, sympathy, empathy, support, not Unintentional critique. You shouldn't feel that way. It's wrong for you to feel so bad. You shouldn't be so downhearted today. Look, the Lord loves you. You're going to be with Him in heaven. Why are you so downcast? That's not what the Lord is responding to the psalmist. So ask ourselves the ask yourself the question: What can I do to create space around me so the ones I love, the ones with whom I'm in community, could come and share their lament? and know they will be heard, and know that the care is deep, and it doesn't have to make the pain go away right now. We're going to love them, but until, I mean, there's so many things that are out of our hands. We're not the fixers. We're the listeners, the ones who are going to communicate, I will be with you, whatever happens. I think that's the message of the gospel. That's what Jesus said as he was ascending, right? And I'll be with you always. And so as image bearers, To people who are lamenting, I think our first statement is, I will be with you, no matter how ugly this gets. You don't have to go through this deep place, through this pit alone. But again, it's easy to ask the question. I'm not sure if I do that. (laughs) I don't have a long line of people waiting to tell me their laments. So I know I give off the wrong signals. That might be something we all work on repenting about. We tell people, you've got to have your act together to come to me. But God didn't say that. So maybe we can change our approach to say, no, I hear you. I just want to tell you I'm with you and I get it. I hope to go faster in the next three sections. Uh, I will. In the next section, the psalmist knew the forgiveness and mercy of the Lord. You see that in verses 3 and 4. The specific kind of lament, and we get this at the end of verse 2, is a penitential lament where he's going to confess his sin because what he's pleading for is mercy. Ah, okay, that means there's something he's done wrong. There's guilt he's incurred. There's something, a, a failure, and so he's looking for forgiveness and mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So we go to a specific kind of lament. You can lament over circumstances and over all kinds of situations, of which you may have no part in. But here we go to the specific kind where he's lamenting over his own sin. And he uses the word iniquities. And there's, uh, if you've looked at Psalm 32 or 51 in the past, there's three different terms that talk about sin. It's not three different kinds of sin. It's three different ways to get at the core of sin. But the iniquities word here is the crooked path. The Distortion or perversion. It's the concept that the ends justifies the means. As long as I'm going this way, as long as I'm going in the right direction, we're fine. But how I get there, ah, the ends justify the means, which is not true. So he said, Lord, if anyone, if you took count of my iniquities, of all those crooked paths, who could stand? This is an Old Testament way of saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because it's a rhetorical question that knows there's only a negative answer. No one could stand. So my question is, we all know this. I think in this room, you know, we all would agree. Has everyone said, yes, we've all sinned. Then why do we live and treat each other as if once we had been forgiven, now we don't sin anymore. now, I actually am a righteous person because I don't sin anymore. Somehow we get in this mindset that I am righteous and justified based on what I do, and I do live a life without sin, and that's because we have to redefine sin. We get our theology all backwards. We have the statements correct. But this verse teaches us if God took a record of all sins, no one could possibly stand. And that's not just the sins we committed in our youth. That's not the sins we committed before we came to Christ. That's all our sins. That's the sins we've committed before 6.30 in the morning. That's the sins we're going to commit today. There are sins that we're committing that separate us from God, that alienate us from other people, that cause estrangement between us and people we would love. We commit those now. And so I think a proper understanding of our sin brings humility And that would affect the way we all relate to each other and relate to others. I am a sinner. Not just I was a sinner. I am a sinner completely dependent upon the forgiveness, which is promised in the next verse. I love this thought that I first heard in a line from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis uh, suggests we we often think about sin in this way. He says, we spend 90% of our time confessing our sin on things that aren't actually sin. We're explaining to God the circumstances and why we were justified in being short-tempered and what that other person had actually done and all these things. And what Lewis says is he says, oh, that's probably not even sin. It's that 10% that we know. It doesn't take any external conviction. We know is sin. I wanted to hurt her. I wanted that person to be humiliated. I did that on purpose. That 10% that is clearly non-negotiably sin, we don't even talk about because we won't admit it to ourselves. You see, that's why we need to understand lament because I realize I don't want to go there. I'd rather spend, if I got 60 seconds, that's what we do with second. We give you 60 seconds to confess all your sins for the week. Good luck with that. Uh, But if I got 60 seconds, I'm going to spend 55 or 58 talking about all those things that happened. That weren't sinful in any way, actually. Because I really don't want to get to that part where I actually, on purpose, with full knowledge and intention, expose that I am a wicked man. I'm working on it i right? have even got to defend it when I'm t- confessing it, right? We don't want to deal with that. That's the sin we've got to confess. That's the crookedness. And the Bible gives us some comfort. If God took account of all of those, none of us would stand. So don't be afraid to get to that failure. Yeah, they were right to let me go. I really wasn't very honest at the way I was doing my job. I really did present myself as someone who I knew I wasn't. We're all like that. There's not another kind of man out there. So the Lord knows our iniquities. He knows our crookedness. The other words are, you know, the one for sin, missing the mark, or transgression, crossing the line. It's all ways of saying the same thing. We knew, we know, and we don't do it intentionally, knowingly. But with the Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There is pardon, the recognition of sin, and the canceling of the penalty for sin. So again, it's not an, that the Lord is unaware of the sin, doesn't understand its full extent. He is fully aware of it. Fully aware of all the motives, all the consequences, and chooses not to punish, chooses to show mercy. A legal and relational cancellation for the penalty of sin. And the result, now the word here is a fear that you may be feared, which we know can be understood as respected and honored, but loved is a fair word, a fair translation that the fear of the Lord is that love that comes from honor and respect. The result of this forgiveness is love and restoration with God. So I think if we learn to confess our sins accurately and truly, the 10% we've been trying to avoid will actually understand the covenant love, the forgiveness of God uh, in a much deeper level. The psalmist knew the forgiveness of the Lord. That's why he could confess his sin. In the third section, the psalmist patiently trusted the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. I think what he's getting at here is he's articulated his lament. He's put his thoughts together. He's presented his case And now he's awaiting the results. He's presented his case to God, and he's waiting for the word. I think in this case, the word is the announcement of the decree from the authority in charge. So he's waiting. Also, he's hoping. There's a sense of trust, which is essential uh, in Lament Psalms. A sense of trust that the Lord will come with a good word, a good answer. And the picture he describes is watchman waiting for the morning. This is the stance that he has, that we have towards the Lord, having presented our prayer, presented our request for him to act mercifully toward us. It's like a watchman on the city wall waiting for morning. Now, because I have grown up in a country that's largely been at peace internally, I have a particular view of what that means. It's waiting for the shift to be over. If you've had a night shift, you've been on an assignment where you had to work all night, there's a certain way you wait for the morning. You're thinking, when will this shift finally be over? You've done your time, you're waiting, you're eager for that shift to be over. That was not the case here. These were soldiers who knew what it was like to be at war. They're guarding the city, they're on the city walls looking out at night for known enemies. They know there are enemies who have historically and periodically attacked them. They're maneuvering their troops. They're preparing to attack. And it's your job to spot them in the dark at a distance. And so you're waiting for the morning in a different way. Because when the morning comes, you recognize... God's protection for another day. When the darkness fades and the light comes, you know you've accomplished your role. You've succeeded in your mission. The city has been protected. And now we have another day to live. That's the kind of trust and hope. We know the morning is coming. We know the sun will rise. And we're waiting for that moment when God, who is our protector, will announce... Yes, a new day has dawned. Yes, I have protected you and I will continue to protect you. That is the stance that the watchman has, that we have as we give these prayers to God. So what does wait mean in the context of lament? These past few months, many of us have been thinking and praying for our brothers in China. If you haven't heard, if you're not aware of the news, in December, some of our partners, their church was really the example to set before Chinese society of what happens when a church doesn't register with the government. And The the entire church was arrested. A hundred people, not the entire church, a hundred people of the church were arrested uh, after many of them were released. About a dozen remain in jail to be eventually tried for subverting state power. This is Wang Yi and his wife. And as you look at the modern history of China, the trial, well, it might be in three years, this secret trial by the government. And secret trials by the government don't, awfully, don't often end well for those, those being tried. We have other partners who are currently under threat. They've already been told, disband your church or sanctions will be enforced. So other partners are seeing this coming. What does it mean for them to wait upon the Lord? How do they wait? You see, I'm over here praying, I believe properly, for the immediate release and their protection. Do you know what they're praying for? (laughs) They're praying to be faithful witnesses. They're praying that whatever happens, they would be faithful witnesses to the Lord and to the Chinese society so that more people could come to know Christ. And they're remembering their grandfathers who were imprisoned, some unto death, who were tortured for year after year. That's what they're remembering. So they would probably use the language of light and momentary afflictions to describe what's happening to them. We can't fathom it. I can't fathom it. I can't imagine with children at home being put in jail, perhaps forever, mom and dad. Dad's the preacher. But they wait. They wait, trusting So that's what it means to wait upon the Lord. It means to trust the results that he is leading. We know morning is coming. And we experience the time difference, and that's it. Lament is the experience of the distance between our current experience and the full implementation of God's promise. There may be a gap. It may be some hours. It may be some years. For the Hebrews, it was 400 years before God remembered, heard their cries, and sent their Savior, Moses. So, the time distance is real. It doesn't make it go away. But they waited trusting. Can we learn to trust, to wait and trust upon the Lord as we share our laments, as we cry out to horrendous things or to the daily trials we face? Trusting that the Lord is good. He's heard our he will announce forgiveness he will announce an end to all suffering to all injustice to all iniquity and inequity (laughs) he will announce an end to all that we simply live in the time in between when what he's promised and what we experience are still at some distance sometimes they intersect sometimes they separate so before I conclude I want to talk about this assignment because it's holy week Because Jesus lamented as he went to the cross. I want to invite you all to consider writing your personal lament. It's only for you, and it's for you to use as a prayer to God, just to help you pray. If you want to share it with a close friend or a spouse or relative, you're welcome to. If you want to share it at your table sometime in the future, you're welcome to, but you're not obligated. But here would be some things you might put in it. And if you study the psalms, you'll discover there's no two psalms in this event, that are, in this sense, that are exactly the same. So you don't have to include every element. Like the psalms don't include every element in every one. But these would be the things I would put in. It's God-directed. That's why our society is bad at lament. Because they just speak out to no one. They speak out in the media, and they think everyone's listening to them, but it's not directed. Lament is God-directed. Because we're in relationship with God, we, whatever we're upset about, whatever hurts... We're speaking to God about. Oh God, Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, I address this to you. It's explicit of the pain and suffering. Be specific. The Psalms are sometimes general, so we can be specific. They're not general because you're just saying, oh God, please help our bad world. Okay? It's specific because my world, my life is painful because of this. Because of my failure, because of my sin, because of the community I live in just can't get along. Whatever the thing is, be specific. Pour out your heart to God, not merely information. If all you get is a list of facts to which you hand on a dossier to the Lord, say, here's my situation, please have a look at it. It's not lament. He cried out. He was pleading with God. So you're engaging your heart to pour out the deeper part of your soul, not just the information. Now, here's uh, number four. Acknowledge sin and my understanding of why this is my own fault. Or acknowledge, I don't understand why this is happening. Or some combination of the both, because that's what you see in the Psalms. There's some things that happen that we know, I sinned and I brought this on myself. There's a lot of things that happen that we have no idea why it happens. But either way, acknowledge where you are. <laughs> and there's probably some mix in the middle. But acknowledge sin, bring a confession of sin where it fits. But don't try to force that. There's things that happen we don't know why it happens. Right? We live in a sinful world and sin goes around even if it doesn't start with us. So plenty of times we don't understand and the language I would use is the suffering is disproportionate to, as a consequence to my sin, to what everybody else experiences. You may be relative to everybody else around you, a good person, but your suffering is a thousand times worse than other people. That's not because of your sin. It doesn't work that way. So when you have that experience, we just say, I don't know why. A bold plea for God to act. Remember what Jesus prayed? Let this cup pass from me. He prayed that if God said yes, we'd all be dead. He prayed that boldly, along with, but not my will. So ask God to act. Ask Him boldly as His child, as his son. God, do this. I need you to do this. <coughs> and He will hear and act. He's God. He knows how to moderate when our heart overspeaks. But ask boldly as a son. And conclude with an affirmation of trust or praise. And that includes, Lord, I don't know how. Tell you the truth right now, I have no trust and no praise on my lips. But I'll write it down. Because you're my God. I'm hopeless, I have no idea what to do. But I acknowledge that. That's trust. Okay? Now, sometimes the psalmist is written after some time and he's seen the whole thing work through and he can say, So I praise you. And that's how this psalm concludes. But to conclude with some affirmation of trust, even if it's a lack of understanding of how you could trust in your situation, I would encourage you to write that out and pray it. And I'll conclude this particular psalm concludes with good news. They don't all conclude with this good news, but let's listen to the conclusion. O Israel, hope in the Lord. The psalmist commands the people of God who hear this to hope, to trust, to wait in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love, an affirmation of his promise to be with us until the end of the age. And with him is plentiful redemption. I'll save that one for last. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He will buy us out just as he did in the Exodus. So he will do through the cross because in him there is plentiful. I love this word. It's just the word for many or much. There is many, many redemption. There is a greatness and quantity of redemption. There is lots and lots of redemption. And this points clearly to the cross that we mourn tomorrow and celebrate on Sunday. Because that's the promise and the proof of the redemption that God accomplished. That sin you didn't want to admit, that 10%. Jesus died for it not accidentally. He knew it. He knew our sin, knew that wicked part that we've been hiding for years, and paid for it. So he canceled the penalty that we deserved. He canceled that so it would be a great redemption, broad and deep, for all those who look to Jesus, for all those who trust in his sacrifice. There's redemption. He buys us out of that sin, and it's deep because It gives us the fullness of God's love. Not a taste, not a little bit. But he promises to be with us forever, that he is our God and we are his people. We are his sons. We are created to be like him, to be image bearers. And we mess that whole thing up. And he bought us back to restore us to now bear his image in the world. That's the... Great redemption, the plenteous redemption that is promised in this psalm, pointing directly to Jesus Christ. So let's learn to pray like the psalmist, to pour out our hearts, because this man who felt the depth of pain concludes by calling everyone to believe in the Lord because of his great redemption. So let's be the kind of people who do that very same thing. Let me pray for us, Lord Jesus. We hate admitting our failures and our sins. There's things we don't admit even to ourselves. Father, would you cause us to be honest with you? And by your Holy Spirit, would you do that work in our hearts that we might openly acknowledge these things to you? And I pray that you would give us that knowledge, that we might cry out to you and pour out our hearts to you, including the ugliness of our sin that we might experience in a deep and new way your forgiveness, that your forgiveness might be real in a growing and living way in our lives every day, and it might affect the way we love others, that we would hand out that same forgiveness, that same love and grace. And I pray this Easter, as we contemplate the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we would experience and understand the fullness of your great redemption accomplished on the cross. I pray for each of these men as they go about their way today that they would reflect your image by the power of of your Holy Spirit and point people to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.